Hey there, listeners. This is Justin with a quick note before today's episode. Spotify recently allowed users to start leaving reviews for podcasts, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would consider listening to the show on Spotify, leaving us a positive review. I don't even think you have to write anything in. You just get a star rating and that's it. But uh, if you're willing to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks and enjoy today's show. Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today's episode number 441, Fill Your Life with Hold My Beer Moments with France Huang. The reality is, right, day to day, no two days are the same. And every day at the White House, I was asked to do something I didn't know how to do had to figure it out, was terrified I would get it wrong and realized I was doing it eventually, right, in the end for the President of the United States. So it was, it was both an exhilarating and incredibly stressful experience, but made all the, the better and more worthwhile because you're working around just terrific people. Well, I've known France a little bit for a while here and the glimpses that I've had into his professional background and his his just personal nature uh, have made me excited to have this interview. It's been a long time coming. Um, we go through a lot in this interview, and you'll see from France's background in this interview, he had military service with the army. He worked as a lawyer, most notably as associate counsel to President George W. Bush. And then he's had an unbelievable entrepreneurial journey, uh, including founding companies that have generated over 600 million in combined sales with over 1,200 employees. So he's succeeded in so many different facets. And it's easy to see why in this conversation because he's very thoughtful and deliberate about how he approaches his life, most notably through a commitment to service. Um, There's a lot we talk about, but here's a couple that stand out to me. I loved his idea of what he calls T-shaped careers. And um, he's borrowing that from someone else. I forget the person who originally coined that, but it's a thought of using the intersection of both breadth and depth as you approach your career. He talks about ignoring sunk costs. And I think that's such great advice personally and professionally. He talks about what he calls these hold my beer moments where he sees that there's a great opportunity that he has to pursue. And that's led to some of the best advances in his own life and career. We talk about the difference between following a set path and openness to serendipity. And we also talk about what he learned by commissioning twice in the US Army and being honorably discharged twice in the US Army, once at 21, once at 35, and the differences in that. And then lastly, we talk about execution and innovation organizations and how these are two different skill sets and how you can be alternating as a leader throughout your career of judging whether it's better to be executing or innovating in any given moment. As always at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss, as well as over 443 other episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive in to my conversation with France. Joining me today in Colorado Springs, Colorado, my guest is France Huang. France, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. 
Hey, good morning, Justin. Great to join you. So for listeners, I've uh, chatted with France a couple of times. I'm amazed at how little he's like the iceberg. I know so little of his story, but every piece that I learn is is even more fascinating than the last. A long time ago, I interviewed his co-founder at Boodle.ai for the show, but we're going to go pretty deep in this, this interview in a couple different directions. But let me give you the context for France's background. He is the co-founder and chief, chief strategy officer at Boodle.ai. He started out at West Point, after which he served in the army. His military service included deploying to the former Yugoslavia during operations Joint Endeavor and Joint Guard, serving as the deputy chief of police and SWAT commander for Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, mobilizing in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, where he served as the executive officer of a U.S. Army Special Forces company on a combat deployment in Southeast Afghanistan. France received a master's in criminal justice from Washburn University and graduated magna cum laude from Georgetown University Law Center. His time in law includes work as a judicial law clerk to the Honorable Thomas B. Griffith, an associate at Williams and Conley, associate counsel to President George W. Bush, and assistant United States attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia. Since then, he has been on the founding teams of companies that have generated over 600 million of combined sales and employed over 1,200 professionals across the fields of law, aerospace, defense, government services, and technology, including MAG Aerospace, FH&H Law, and now Boodle.ai. France, to kick things off, anything you'd like to add or amend to that bio? No, I just have to say, Justin, you're reminding me, I need to learn how to hold down a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I'm like, God, you have such an amazing and diverse background. I feel like we could spend an hour on these different chapters and it's so intimidating to even know where to start. But one thing I was curious about is like, as you look back on your career path, it seems like there's three chapters here. It's kind of like military, the world of law, and then this world of technology startups. Is that how you view it? Is it like, is it these clear delineations or how do you look back on it? It's a great question, Justin. So I'm a refugee from Vietnam. I was part of the evacuation out of Saigon in 1975. My father was a South Vietnamese army officer. My mother was a worked for the U.S. Naval Attaché. And so in April of 1975, I was evacuated by the Americans as part of this great rescue operation where over 110,000 Vietnamese were brought out. And because of that, growing up, I learned about my family's history, learned about this amazing opportunity I had as, a, as an immigrant, all these opportunities I wouldn't have had had I not been brought here or rescued from communism by the military. It drove me to first join the military as a way of paying back this great country for the opportunities I've been given. But more importantly, I think it instilled me from a very urge to desire to serve. I just never took for granted both the freedoms I enjoyed and the opportunities I had. And I felt that you know I was given that for a reason, and the reason was to give back. And so I always strove to find a way to be of service. The, the most immediate way being a veteran yourself, you understand this, right? Serve a country in uniform, give back, put, you know, as someone once said, putting yourself in harm's way. After my time in, in the military, I wanted to serve in a different fashion. And I thought the field of law, right? And, and I found a great deal of, of joy and professional uh, satisfaction in, in serving clients the same way. And when I became an entrepreneur, I initially thought that was kind of a different chapter, like you pointed out, like a different chapter in my life. I realized at some point that great entrepreneurs are also driven by a desire to serve. And so now, now that I'm at this end of 
this kind of, you know, those three different chapters, I, I realized they're actually all the same theme, right? Which is desire to serve, whether it's serving my country, it's serving my clients, or in the case of being an entrepreneur, being of service by creating products and services that help other people. And you know, they help other people because they're willing to pay you for it, right? And so that's how you build a successful company. How old were you at that time when you left Vietnam? 18 months old. Don't remember wow. a thing. Wow. I had no idea. That's just crazy. And I can imagine having that be part of your history and your family history. Like you see, you benefit from the service of others. And I can imagine that has been part of your drive of like, it is interesting to see your career through that lens of service. And I think that that holds up the military service, the service in law, and then the service in, in startups and technology. I also wanted to ask, there's so many impressive things in your background, but the one that I've never heard on the show is the associate counsel to the president. What led to that experience and what was that experience like? Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to become a lawyer is I thought there was an opportunity to just kind of serve at the highest levels of government. I'd been very tactical, right? Served as a platoon leader in the former Yugoslavia, led America's sons and daughters as a commissioned officer. And I was very interested in national security. And so being a lawyer would give me the opportunity to develop the skills and eventually have the, the chance to serve at some senior level position in government. I was, I was very fortunate that opportunity came four years after I graduated from law school, which is a unusual and ridiculously fast amount of time to go from law school graduate to associate White House counsel. Many people in DC, you know, I got a lucky break because of the kindness and generosity of others. I, I clerked for a judge. He connected me with Fred Fielding, the new White House counsel under President George W. Bush. He was looking for somebody with a particular background. I happened to meet it and then, you know, interviewed and got this wonderful opportunity to serve in the, in the White House for uh, almost two years. What was your day-to-day -day life like during that time? Like what sort of activities occupied your time? So the job of an Associate White House Counsel, I'll, I'll say it in two ways. So the job of an Associate White House Counsel is there are anywhere from you know a dozen to 18 Associate White House Counsels. Everything in the White House is divided into kind of different areas of, of equities, of interest. And one of the Associate White House Counsels covers down on that portfolio of issues. So in my case, it was uh, investigations and homeland security. I also had like the White House military office, the White House communications agency, and anything in the White House that had to do with your portfolio, you had to review it. And so anytime the president was making a decision, say about emergency declarations, because I was one of the homeland security lawyers assigned in the White House counsel's office, I had to review that. And so it was a big job of issue spotting and making sure that what the, pre you know, the president's equities, the, the White House equities were defended and you kind of identified any legal issues. So that's kind of like the description of the job. The reality is, right, day to day, no two days are the same. And every day at the White House, I was asked to do something I didn't know how to do, mm. had to figure it out, was terrified I would get it wrong and realized I was doing it eventually, right, in the end for the president of the United States. So it was, it was both an exhilarating and incredibly stressful experience, but made all the better and more worthwhile because you're working around just terrific people. As you can imagine, the White House attracts some of the most experienced and talented and motivated people. And they go, they come to serve. And for that period of time, they kind of put everything aside. So imagine the A plus team putting in their A plus effort 24 seven. Well, <laughs> as I knowing some of your story, as I hear that, I'm thinking of the parallels to entrepreneurship where, you know, you're learning something on a new day, but, but the difference here seems like the 
ramifications for a mistake are far higher than I associate with like traditional tech entrepreneurship where there's a little bit more tolerance for error. So I see how that might have have played a role there. And then I also see you working with these A players on their A games. Did you notice any trends in that? I view you as someone who has operated at the highest level in the military, the highest level in public service and law, and then the highest level in entrepreneurship. Do you see any similarities or differences in the leadership style employed across those three? Yeah. So this brings up a great issue that Steve Blank has talked a lot about this. So there are execution organizations and there are innovation organizations, Mm -hmm. right? So execution organizations are tend to be centralized. They want efficiency. They want effectiveness. They like standardization. They build processes. They want things done right. And they want things done the right way over and over and over again. Innovation requires you to fail. It's messy. It's it's wasteful. But that's how you come up with new ideas and you break the norms. And so there's a tension here, both in terms of trying to do innovation and execution organization, in terms of being an execution organization that values innovation, but maybe has a hard time with the costs of that, right? The messiness of it. And we we see this often. We see what we call heroic innovators, right? Which are people who exist inside an execution organization and then in a mass flurry of activity kind of spend all their political capital to get one innovative thing done. And so whether you're working in public service or a large company or the army or as a lawyer, I think it's useful to have that lens of understanding part of your organization is an execution organization. Part of your organization wants to be innovative. And also, as you as a leader, there are times to be a, an execution leader, and there are times to be an innovation leader. And part of good leadership is understanding which one is appropriate, and also what are the pros and cons of adopting a, per, a particular modality in a particular circumstance. We tend to value in the world of entrepreneurship innovation, right? And we talk about coming up with new ideas. But the reality is, innovation is great, but it's not an end into itself. In other words, you shouldn't just be innovative for the sake of being innovative. If somebody told me to drive a car to get to point A to point B, it'd be silly if I told you I spent six months to build a brand new mode of transportation. You would ask me, France, why didn't you just take an Uber, right? Or drive the car that's in your parking lot. Like taking the car is an execution mode, right? Coming up with something new is an innovation mode. I, I really appreciate that distinction. I often think of it's rare for me to find people like you, or you know, you've kind of been with an organization through both the early stages and and you've been in organizations at a much larger stage. And it seems to me like that requires very different skill sets of you know scaling versus creating. I haven't actually heard that Steve Blank framework before of the execution and innovation. But what I most appreciate about it is that sense of like, it's not an either or, it's almost like in each moment, what is the right skill to bring to bear and realizing the, the, the benefits and detractions of both of them. And I also like you pointing that out where like innovation gets a lot of recognition, but also realizing like, I, I love that analogy, like you don't want to build a new car, like you want to use existing structures to be as efficient as possible. I wanted to ask about, so first of all, just to make sure I'm tracking correctly, because I'm piecing this together from LinkedIn, was your kind of first jumping off point from law, was that going to when you joined MAG? Was that the start of a new chapter? Yes. I realized my resume is like an exercise in anarchy. So after my first time being commissioned in the army, I went to law school, clerked for a couple of judges, worked in the Senate, worked at a, at a law firm, great law firm, Williams and Connolly, then worked in the White House. And then this is where things get confusing. I was a federal prosecutor for a bit before rejoining the army. 
and becoming uh, a captain again at the age of 35. So I recommissioned. So I've actually been commissioned twice and decommissioned uh, twice. I'll be discharged from the army twice. Mm-hmm. And so it's in 2009, 2010, I served in Afghanistan with 20th Special Forces Group. When I was there, I got an email from a former colleague at Williams & Connolly, Joe Fluid, who says, look, I've got an idea for not one, but two companies. As soon as you get back, I'm going to twist your arm and ask you to join the founding teams. And so when I got back, I planned to go back to being a federal prosecutor and sat down with Joe Fluitt. And he says, look, I, you know, I'm starting a law firm. I've started a law firm. wanting you to join, become a partner. I've also this other company called Mag Aerospace. We're starting off. would like you to join the founding teams of it. Ironically enough, I told him no when he asked because I had a path. There was a clear path. And this seemed really risky to me. But after walking around DuPont Circle in DC for an hour realizing I was still thinking about this, I realized that this fell into what I call the rocking chair test or what Jeff Bezos calls the regret minimization test. If I never tried, I would regret it. When I'm 93 years old and sitting in my rocking chair asking, what are the things I regret not doing? This fell in those categories. And so that's why I called Joe Flute back and said, hey, Joe, let's have a discussion. And so I made the decision. My first foray into entrepreneurship was not joining one, but two companies simultaneously, uh, being helping start a law firm and Mag Aerospace. That tracks with what I know of you of like, if you're going to join a startup, you're going to join two, <laughs> whatever, whatever yeah. the typical person would do, yeah. you're going to do twice as much. <laughs> yeah. Not, not recommended to be honest. Um, I generally tell people like startups take everything out of you so that you should have a singular focus. But in this case, I had a secret weapon, which is great co-founders, two different founding teams. Joe Fluitt was the CEO and him and I complimented one another. And because I was operating in two different organizations, I made sure that I wasn't mission critical to anything day to day, right? There's other people doing day to day. I was providing value quickly realized I could provide value strategically and kind of jumping in and solving kind of sticking points and friction points in organizations, which has kind of become my modus operandi. So a couple of questions come up with that. I just want to, for listeners, recap. I love that rocking chair test because something I think about often is the tension between dedication, motivation, where I think veterans spike and this commitment to a path of like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go accomplish the mission. And that has benefits. But then also the openness to serendipity, the openness to the unexpected, and those often come at contrast. So I like that rocking chair test that you mentioned is like a nice reminder for our audience that like it's great to have these goals it's great to have these objectives and there's a great thing that comes about by being open to that serendipity and those unexpected opportunities one thing i was just going to touch on just so i'm tracking with joe how because this is such a a key relationship in your life what was the initial way that you guys got to know each other yeah so we're both army veterans we both were lawyers we were both working at william Connolly. we were assigned to cases together and like often happens, you know, you just kind of click together. And so, you know, we became friends and always had a lot of admirations for each other's uh, work abilities and and trust, frankly, as you well know, entrepreneurship is it between co-founders is a journey of trust. One thing I appreciate, I, I get your advice of not maybe straddling two horses, but one thing I'm appreciating about your story is I feel like for myself and many entrepreneurs I meet with, it's really hard to get out of the day-to-day. Sometimes when you start something, you're like in the weeds. It's hard to divorce yourself from the day-to-day and get to that strategic level. And it sounds like the benefit of being involved in these two organizations is you are forced 
to be at that strategic level. You were forced to divest yourself from the day-to-day, which can be really hard. So there's at least that benefit, it seems like, that came from your Jack Dorsey of uh, these two two different organizations. As the companies grew, were you naturally pulled into one or did you kind of throughout your time, did you kind of equally spend your time on each of them? As MAG grew, so within a, within three years, uh, MAG was about a $25 million a year company from nothing. And at that point, we took a, our first round of private equity in. And one of the conditions was that Joe Fluitt devote himself entirely to MAG. But him and I worked out that I would still be allowed to divide my time. So I, I was the only person insane enough to continue to, in both companies as they both scaled. And so, no, I always stayed until MAG exited. So we, we went from startup to about 325 million in revenue in eight years. And the law firm grew at a good clip as well. I stayed involved with both companies from the day I became a member of the both founding teams to the the day that uh, MAG exited. Does that fit your personality? Is there like in retrospect, is there part of you that benefited from the variety? I can imagine like you're using different parts of your brain. I can imagine the cost of that, like the cognitive load, but I can also imagine how you're kind of getting different muscles and learning things in one that helps the other. So I'm just curious, like looking back, was that actually well suited to your strengths, or your personality? It, it was. Um, I'd never been an entrepreneur before. I don't have a business degree don't come from a family of entrepreneurs, never was really interested in business, to be perfectly honest, until Joe Fluid approached me about an entrepreneur. So I needed a crash course. And one of the great things was, as a lawyer, my law firm, FH&H, serves a lot of entrepreneurs. And so as their lawyer, I was essentially deep diving into the legal problems, but also thinking about it as a business problem. And so I basically had the equivalent of you know, 100 case studies in business working as a lawyer. And I would take the lessons learned from serving my clients and apply them to my own business. Of course, the things I did in business at MAG helped me better relate to my law firm clients. So it was this kind of very mutually beneficial relationship between the roles. That's great. I want to keep going on this, but I want to pause just for a second so I don't lose another thread I wanted to ask about. Um, I think it's so fascinating that you commissioned twice in the army, first at 21, I'm guessing, and second at 35. And the two questions that came up for me is like, I'm putting myself in your shoes. I'm like, man, I'm, I was such a different entity at 35 than I was at 21. And so I'm curious, like how you felt like you approached your role as an officer differently, given the just unbelievable breadth of experience you had at 35. But then I'm also curious about what that time period did for you. When I went to business school, it was a pause. It was a way to reorient. And so I can, this is like so weird because it's like the opposite where you're going back into the military. But I imagine that you gain some perspective there and it kind of adds to your outlook on life in a way that's that maybe changed how you approach things when you left the military for the second time. When you're 21 and you're full of piss and vinegar and you can floss with barbed wire and you can chew concrete, like going off to war is just a great adventure, right? At the age of 35, when you have something to lose and you're more cognizant of the fact that you're not invulnerable and it's a much more meaningful decision. On the flip side, or maybe the other side of the same coin, you're also much more deeply appreciative of the opportunity, right? So, you know, why did I do it? I did it because a good friend asked me to be his XO and that's what you do. I did it because... I'm a service academy graduate and I'm here because of the service of others. And this is what service academy graduates are called to do. Go to the sounds of of the guns. And in my case, I wanted to do it because other people answer that call and help bring me here. But I also did it because 
you know, the opportunity to once again lead America's sons and daughters. Like it's a very special thing to serve alongside and have responsibility for whether it's soldiers, sailors, airmen, or Marines, and the opportunity to serve alongside special operations forces and to, to lead them. It's just a privilege. And I was deeply appreciative of how rare that is. And there's a phrase I often use, right? Fill your life with hold my beer moments. This was a hold my beer moment. I think when you go to combat at the age of 35, you're a lot more cognizant of what's at risk. You're also a lot more deeply appreciative of what you're gaining from it. And, uh, you know, I'd spent at that point two years working in the White House, working at the highest levels of government. I was ready to like go back to, you know, serving alongside soldiers and being at the, at the other end of, of this spear. And it was uh, for me, uh, I know this sounds strange, but uh, combat was actually in a way kind of cathartic. Like it was, there's a clarity that comes from being in combat. You know what's important. Right. And so life in DC, um, working in government, balancing things, uh, it's complicated. Uh, combat isn't. You take care of your soldiers, you get the mission accomplished, and everything else kind of fades away. Yeah, I love that. I love this thought of the hold my beer moments. And I want to come back to that. But I can also imagine like the refreshing nature of like, I mean, just going from the weight of the decisions and all of the nuance to like the the simplicity of survival, right? It is like this like very visceral experience. So I can imagine that's like this career palate cleanser for you. And it's just exciting to think of like how much of a different leader you must have been, but also what you contributed to your team from your own life experience. And I'm imagining how you were energized by some of that, you know, fire and vinegar. There's two things that came out of that I wanted to dig in into, but one of them is like, what are some of the other hold my beer moments that you've kind of experienced in your life? I mean, what certainly, you know, one of them was going to West Point. Yeah. Um, another one was in my month before graduating from West Point, I was given an opportunity to go to Ranger School, mm. but there was under three conditions. One, I had to report basically a month later, oh. uh, one week after graduation. So I only had about three and a half weeks to prepare for Ranger School. I had to give up all my graduation leave to go. And then because it was the last class to allow non-combat arms back in 1995, I couldn't recycle. So I could go all the way through. And if I failed the last phase, I wouldn't get a Ranger tab. And so I, I decided to do it anyways and still gave up graduation, showed up a week after graduation, gave up graduation leave and managed to make it through straight without recycling and get my Ranger tab. Recommissioning and going to Afghanistan, becoming an entrepreneur, and even more so shortly after MAG Aerospace uh, started, our big break came when we had the opportunity to purchase three planes that were on contract. And you know, starting an aviation company, the hard thing is getting your aircraft on contract we had an opportunity to buy three planes. The only problem is they cost millions of dollars and no one would fund us and no one would lend us the money. And so the founding team basically emptied out everything we had. All of our life savings, emptied out 401ks. A couple of folks took second mortgages, one without telling his wife, I don't recommend doing that as an entrepreneur, <laughs> by the way. And we placed, you know, we basically kind of went poker style all in to purchase these three planes because they got us on contract. The rub was the contract was about to be canceled. And so we bought these planes and got on contract with the belief that we could, in a matter of weeks, convince the customer not to cancel the contract. And luckily they did. They didn't cancel the contract. Um, we convinced them. And that was the start of MAG Aerospace. That was the first aviation contract. That, that was certainly another big hold my beer moment. I mean, literally like multiple people's life savings all went into this one roll the dice moment. And more recently, you know, I've been heavily involved with the Afghanistan evacuations. That was an all-consuming exercise in 
strategic patients and working the private sector, public partnerships, and trying to do something that never done before, which is a digital non-combatant evacuation operation. And, you know, the team that I was fortunate to be a part of managed to organize the first private charter evacuation flight out of Afghanistan and, and got 380 people out in mid-September, which was the, the first of many flights that um, other groups organized eventually to, to get folks out of Afghanistan. And, and that work continues. That's great. I'm bookmarking that as well. We've got a lot of open parentheses here that I want to come back to, but the evacuation of Afghanistan is one. But one of the other things I wanted to close a parenthesis on was I don't want to like make stories where there aren't stories, but I'm just like, I hear you, you know, it seems like you're kind of pulled in back to the army in, in support of a friend to be the number two. And then I hear with Joe Fluitt, like it feels like you're pulled in to co-founding two organizations and like a number two type position because it's a friend and you're like in this support role. And I don't actually know the story with you and Sean at Boodle, but I'm like, does that seem to be a trend in your life where you make connections, you have an opportunity to support someone, you kind of like go there and in support, but that ends up being this major chapter in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Look, at the end of the day, right, all we have is each other. Like relationships matter the most, right? They're like they said, you can't take it with you. No one ever, no one ever died saying, gosh, I wish I'd spent more time working. It's not just the journey, it's who you go on the journey with. And I've been very fortunate. You know, all things being equal, surrounding yourself with good people, and that's a choice you get to make. I think that's a critical path, part of the path, right? Of of success. When I was a young lawyer, at first I made, I chose cases based on how cool the cases were. I want to be in this case. It's a cool case. And in some cases I got in those cool cases. Other cases I just, in other cases, I just got assigned partners to work with because they needed cases. And what I came to realize quickly was it wasn't the type of matter that determined how much I enjoyed the case. It was the type of lawyer. Mm-hmm. In other words, a bad case with a great team was more enjoyable than a great case with a bad team. Mm-hmm. And so I quickly stopped picking cases based on what the case was. And I started picking cases based on who the partner was. And I got to work with amazing partners that way. That's kind of become a guiding principle in life for me. Like just surround yourselves with good people. And I'm kind of at the point now in, I think, in life where I think we all eventually get there, right? Whether you officially or unofficially declare a no assholes rule in your life, yeah. both for your personal life and your professional life. I love that. I was thinking about that. I've seen this with a couple of friends from grad school where it seems like, I know this is the case, but it seems like their strategy was like, I'm just going to hitch my wagon to a great leader and wherever they go, I'm going to go with them. And, you know, one of them's like very senior at Goldman Sachs because the leader she hitched her wagon to is CFO there. And it's like, I think that that's when there's so much uncertainty and picking an opportunity, that's like one constant is like, I know this person's a great leader that I can learn from, or this is a great team that I can learn from. So I think that's like a very simple view or relatively simple viewpoint that's really actionable for listeners. One thing I wanted to ask about too is I'm imagining you had this like bench clearing experience with MAG where you know you kind of take all of your finances and or the majority of them and put them on this. And then I'm guessing, you know, on the other end, you have this like life-changing, I'm guessing it's a life-changing financial experience where you experience wealth in a different level than you've ever experienced before. And I ask from the vantage point of like, in my career, I'm kind of like, I'm aiming for that. Like a big motivation for me is providing financial stability for my family in a way that I never experienced. And I'm curious, like, 
being on the other side, how much has that impacted you on a personal level and professional level? Like having experienced this windfall, did it change the way you approached work? Like, was it temporary? Was it permanent? Like what's been the impact of having achieved like a huge financial success? I guess it depends on what you define as huge financial success, but I, I will say this, and this may seem counterintuitive or may seem intuitive, depending on where you're coming from. I really do believe we don't want money. We want what money can buy. Mm. So, but when you don't have money, you're pursuing money, right? Because that's the opportunity that, that creates financial stability, it creates opportunities. It creates the ability to do the things you want or to have the kind of impact you want. But really, if somebody gave you a billion dollars, Justin, and says, but you can't spend it, you can only say you have it. Mm-hmm. Does that make you happy? Does that accomplish anything you want? No, you want the money because you want to do things with the money. But ironically, here's the thing. Some of the things we want to do with our money don't require money. They mm-hmm. require other resources. Time, for example, right? Just so this joke, right? When you're young, you spend your health to get wealth. And when you get old, you spend your wealth to maintain your health, right? Like yeah. there are all kinds of very you know, well-off people that would give anything to have better health if they'd taken care of themselves. Time, right? There are all kinds of people who make it big at, you know, whatever age, maybe later on life, and they're spending a lot of money to get back time. Yeah. And, and you have the luxury of time now, right? You have more time available to you looking forward than the richest billionaire at the age of 80, yeah. right? No amount of time can substitute for that. Even some of the opportunities you have in the military, I got to experience things that no amount of money can buy, mm. those kinds of experiences. And so I would say this, right? You know, in terms of being wealthy, ask yourself, what would you do with that wealth? And then ask yourself, do you need wealth to do those things? And don't wait, be rich today. I love that. You know, as you, as you say that, like one thing I'm aware of is like, you know, I have like a three-year-old, so that's very top of mind. And so mm-hmm. it's like, the story is, well, wealth, makes me guarantee that he'll be safe, which is actually not true, right? Like I know lots of people who are wealthy where their children get sick or Mm -hmm. get hit by a car. Like there's no, like what I'm going for there is security. That's just an illusion. That's not actually there. But I love that framing of just kind of like, it's almost like getting to the, the end state. Like, what do you want? Like there's that parable probably everyone's heard where there's like the young man who sees the guy on the beach you know, who's running his fishing operation and he goes through like, oh, buy all these boats and expand your operation. And, you know, and the old man is basically like, to what end? So he's like, so you can sit on the beach all day. He's like, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> like, why do I need to expand all of these things? <laughs> right. So I love this sense of like being clear on what you're wanting and money might not necessarily make that difference. It might come down to health, wealth experiences, these things that we can have in this moment. One thing that we had talked about briefly when you and I spoke last was I think I just asked something to the effect of like, oh, would you go back into politics? And what I remember you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I remember you saying was that something to the extent of like the impact you can have on business through business actually kind of exceeds the impact that you could have through politics. And I'd love to unpack that a little bit. Your sense having gone through military politics and business now of how you think about making the world a better place. Yeah, I think it comes back to service, right? You know, the question is for me, how do I best serve? And look, politics, we need good people to run for office because if good people don't run for office, they don't win office. And if good people don't win office, we don't have good people leading our country. And political service is service. It is a massive sacrifice on your 
for your family, for yourself, for your finances, perhaps. And so, you know, I admire anybody who takes that plunge. You know, for me personally, I have many ways that I want to make a difference. I personally feel like at this, at least at this point in my life, who knows in the future, I feel like I can have more of an impact out of political office than than in political office, or at least the the opportunity cost of running for political office is pretty high. And uh, you know, though I do admire all my friends that you know and colleagues that you know have run and have won and and are serving. That's great. What about what's the what's your sense on now that you're you know Boodle? I, I you know it's smaller than Mag was when you left. How is your experience with entrepreneurship different? This time around, this is, I guess, your third or fourth time, yeah. you know, in an early stage environment. What's what's different this time? I think you've seen the stat, right? Ninety-seven percent of stage companies fail. When people ask me, you know, what should I be prepared for as an entrepreneur? You know, I always tell people failure. The dirty secret of entrepreneurship, not so dirty for anybody who's been an entrepreneur, is it's mostly a life of failure. Like you're going to get things wrong. You're going to get product market fit wrong. You're going to get go to market wrong. You're going to make the wrong hire. You're going to probably have make bad engineering decisions, you know, make a bad decision as a co-founder. Like that's part of entrepreneurship. And we often tend to think that successes are the result of us and failures are all extraneous circumstances, right? There's no magic secret. Like just because you're successful once as an entrepreneur doesn't mean you're going to be successful again. And yeah. particularly, you know, MAG was a government services company in the aerospace field and a technology company but mostly services. The law firm obviously is a professional services business. I helped start a co-working space, which is a different business model. Boodle is my first go-round in a technology SaaS startup. And so, you know, it's a lot of hard learning. I've got an amazing team, an amazing co-founder, Sean Olds. We are fighting the good fight and got some good early traction, but every startup is its own, own adventure with its own challenges. I think for me, the joy of creating something with a team that's the constant. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier about surrounding yourselves with good people. And so I would say one thing that you know we've striven, you know, me and Sean and the other leaders at Boodle done to do is create a great team with a great culture and use that as the foundation for a company that can grow and scale. That's great. One other thing I wanted to ask about was, and then we'll get to Afghanistan, but I feel like, you know, so many people who listen to Beyond the Uniform, they're either leaving the military, thinking about their first job, or they've been out for a while and they're thinking about a career change. I kind of envy the people who at age seven said, I want to be a doctor. And they just focused on that. They specialized, like all of their effort was pushed in one direction. You, to me at least, you know, I experience you as someone who's the opposite, where you've, you know, you've had this buffet approach to your career and life where you've sampled so right. many different things. And then even in a startup sense, co-working and AI company and a government contract, like there's so much variety there. What advice do you have for people around that sense of, of specialization and focusing and really gilding, building career capital in a narrow field yeah. versus more of what seems like your story of like having a very broad experience that seems to have served you really well. So I'm going to borrow something that I heard Ambassador Kim at West Point graduate say at a lunch to a group of cadets. He talked about being a T-shaped person. Mm. A T-shaped person has a specialty, right? So that, that's the, the stem of the teeth. They pick something and they specialize and they get good at it. Try to be the best in the world because you need depth, right? It, we all need a vocation. And whether it's being a lawyer or a software developer or a finance person, you pick something, you get good at it. But in today's world, right, where things are changing so quickly, you also need breadth. 
And so as you're building your depth, you also want to build breadth in other areas because the opportunities are all at the edges, right? It's where emerging technology meets the taxicab industry. And all of a sudden you produced Uber, right? It's, it's two different things, you know, meeting in that intersection creates opportunity. And, and so you want to be a T-shaped person. And eventually, as you get older, if you have the opportunity, you add additional stems to your T. You add additional areas where you are depth. And then you know, maybe you're very fortunate where those two areas overlap in a way that creates an opportunity to really have an impact and to create something that has massive ability to change the world, whether that's in the private sector as a business, whether it's in government, in policy, or it's in philanthropy, you know, whatever. But I, I feel like the opportunities generally are at the intersection of two things that frankly require depth in both areas. I like that because I kind of had this false assumption that there's this dichotomy between depth and breadth. And I like that lens of the overlap and the opportunity that provides of having breadth in some areas and, and extreme depth in another. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to make space for you to share about your most recent experience with Afghanistan. I know that was very all-consuming for you for you know a period of time. And I know I imagine it still has an impact on you. But what would you want listeners to know about the, the work that you were doing there. Yes, yeah, so like a lot of folks in the national security for the last 20 years, right? I had a connection to Afghanistan. And in my cases, it was two. I, I served there with 20 Special Forces Group in Host Province. My you know, Special Forces company that I was XO of was divided into six operational detachments alphas. Each one was a, was partnered with an Afghan uh, unit, whether it was police or army or commandos, spread all over Southeast Afghanistan. And then later at Maggot Aerospace, we had a number of contracts in Afghanistan, including training, helping to train the Afghan army. And so, like many folks, I watched in late summer as Kabul fell and was dismayed at the fact that, you know, we had not properly planned for the evacuation of our of our Afghan allies. We had made a promise to them. Uh, there are many Afghans we fought alongside, and we made a promise to them that there was a, a legal pathway for them to come to the United States um, if they wanted it. And in that void, you know, in that crush at the end of August, as people were trying to leave and unable to get into the airport and dozens, perhaps hundreds of organizations sprung up, filled by by volunteers who were passionate about making a difference. And, and we saw this digital non-combatant evacuation operation stand up where people were from their living rooms and kitchens and bedrooms using Signal and WhatsApp and Google Maps and uh, trading information and helping, doing everything they can to help get their Afghan allies out. And so I was part of that operation. I was, there's an organization called uh, Allied Airlift 21, where I was started by, by three West Pointers helping to get their classmate out um, and their former student. Uh, once they got those Afghan Americans out in true kind of service style, they, just, they decided to ask who else needs help. And that operation quickly bloomed a matter of days to hundreds of volunteers working and managed to get hundreds of, of Afghan allies out in the closing days before HKS ceased operations. Um, I found myself in a strange situation responsible for uh, a convoy of hundreds of Afghans along with a, a couple other volunteers that were trying to get out of the airport at Kabul and through strange sequence events, we were unable to get in there and so decided to move them overland to Mazar-e-Sharif, which, you know, on the fly, we organized this convoy Took better part of a day, 
Um, we were hoping to fly them out of Mazari Sharif. We're able to do that. So again, on the fly, we quickly find them safe housing, safe food, secured them, keep them safe as Taliban forces moved up from Kabul to Mazari Sharif, and then work through the unbelievable challenge of getting a flight authorized, both from the Taliban, from the State Department, from the government of Qatar. And on September 17th, was successful in getting a the very, like I mentioned, the very first private charter evacuation flight. Um, after the U.S. ended its military and diplomatic presence and an aircraft took off with 380 mm-hmm. Afghan allies on board. And, and I'm happy to share with you, Justin, as of today, 100% of those passengers are now in the United States, legally immigrated, starting new lives. I must say, right, much like my family did yeah. uh, 46 years ago. And that's kind of the, the circle of life portion of this. And I'm passionate about this, not only because of my service in Afghanistan, and my company's work there, but also because when I look at these Afghan families, I see my own family there. Yeah, it's wild. That's one thing that was occurring to me for the first time as you were explaining that is like how full circle it is and how, you know, for someone who where service is very clearly one of your foundational values that the service that made the difference in your life and your family's life, like you've paid that forward in such an unbelievable way in all of these Afghan. It's, it's just crazy to think of someone from Afghanistan 20 years from now might be recounting this story as the genesis of their history of service. So that's that's really beautiful. I always like to leave an open-ended question for the end. And that's that, you know, we, we've covered a lot of ground. There's a lot that I didn't ask about though, but I just wanted to make space here at the end. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure you leave listeners with before you wrap up? Yeah. One of the things I often talk about, you know, people kind of comment on the fact that I'm essentially appear to be unemployable. One of the things that's contributed out is one of my core philosophies which is ignore sunk costs. Um, oftentimes, I think we hold ourselves back because we say, well, look, I've already invested so much in X, right? I've already been in the army five years. I can't leave now, right? Or I got a degree in paleontology. I hate paleontology, but I spent three years getting a PhD. I got to be a paleontologist. Who says so, right? Like if you're where you're at, right? Personally, professionally, you know, the question, you know, there's that old thing. You can't do anything about the past. The future is yet to come. The only thing you can affect today. So the future is in the past. Another way of saying that is ignore some costs. Don't restrict and limit yourself based on your belief that because I've invested X, I need to get some kind of return on that. Yes, you've invested X and X is is a sunk cost. So in terms of future decision-making, if X is helpful to you, great. Capitalize on it. If it isn't, then chalk it up to this got me to where I'm at and I'm going in a different direction. So I'm a strong believer in that mantra of ignore some costs. I really appreciate that. I, I like the sense of beginner's mind because I I so often, you know, I cling to old emotions that aren't even alive today, or I kind of cling to old experiences. So I like that sense of ignoring sunk costs because it gives you that fresh ability. And especially for listeners who maybe they've had 20 years in the military Mm -hmm. and like, maybe they're moving on and maybe they have some story about how that hinders them. And you can approach it with that fresh perspective of like, you're starting new now and you've got a lot of road ahead of you. Brents, thank you so much for your time today. For our listeners interested in keeping abreast of what you're up to, where can they kind of follow what you're up to? Yeah. Follow me on Twitter at, uh, FQ Hong, H-O-A-N-G, or just always reach out. You know, always look forward to hearing from fellow entrepreneurs, fellow veteran entrepreneurs in particular, or people who are making a transition. And if I can be helpful, so you can reach out to me at France at Boodle, B-O-O-D-L-E dot A-I. And for listeners at beyondtheuniform.org, we'll have show notes with links to all of these things. Thank you so much for your time today, France. Thank you, Justin. Appreciate you having me on. Surface, surface, surface. <laughs>
Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our Editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for-purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.